Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode number 40 of Shut Up and Wrestle, in which I've done something pretty special and pretty neat in that I have invited over my usual co-host on my other podcast, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated podcast, Mr. Al Castle, senior writer of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. He is going to be my guest this week on Shut Up and Wrestle. Before we get to that, let's get to this. Want to talk to you about a couple of things. Uh, Want to talk to you about, you know, I'm very excited and I posted a little bit about this on on Twitter the other day, but... um. Coming up in the next two issues of Inside the Ropes magazine, the December issue and the January issue, I've mentioned this before, but I have a two-part article in which I'm going to be breaking down all of the major United States and Canada territories of really kind of the heyday of the territorial era, and uh, I just think it's going to be uh, hopefully a very good tool and a very good reference source for people. I hope you enjoy it. I'm really putting a lot of research and work into it. And the best part of it is that it's going to be coming with a map. Okay. In 2005, I created a territory map with mastermind designer, Dan Trombetto working on SmackDown magazine at WWE. We created a territorial map for use in the magazine. That map popped up in a lot of other places over the years, both from WWE and elsewhere. Um, But it was flawed. You know, there were things we left out. There were mistakes we made. And here I am now, 17 years later, I'm getting a chance to correct uh, the map. So that's maybe the best part of this whole project. So I'm looking forward to it. I'll be letting you know when it's actually available, when it comes out. Um, It'll be here before you know it. Also want to update you on my next uh, wrestling book project. Again, I'm not yet uh, at liberty to say what it is specifically. Um, It is uh, going to be a biography. I will say that. And um, I officially put in the the one sheet, which is kind of a marketing tool that publishers use to sell the book. It's a one sheet, kind of like a pitch for the book. So that is in. Next step is going to be Knockwood signing the contract. And then we're off to the races. And then I could talk all about it. Until then, I will keep you, dear listener, in suspense. Now, last thing I want to get to before we get to the conversation, because I mentioned I was going to do it last week, so I'm going to do it now, which is to go over my selections in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame ballot. Um, I've been uh, honored to be able to participate in this ever since um, my book Pro Wrestling FAQ came out in 2015. I have been included in in on the voting. So uh, let me give you some insight on who I voted for, the, who I voted for, for those who are curious. Um, I like to vote for as many as they will let me vote for, uh, pretty much because I, I really do think that there are a lot of people, in my opinion, who deserve to be in there, who aren't in there. 
And I tend to go from older to newer in terms of who I vote for. So if you're if you're somebody from a long time ago who really, truly deserves to get in, you're going to definitely take precedence to me over somebody who is currently active who may need to get in at some point in the future. So that kind of informs the way that I vote. Uh, let's take a look. So there's several different categories, as some of you may know, that you can vote on. Um, in the historical category, historical performers, my votes went to June Byers, of course, great women's champion of the past, uh, who is sometimes overlooked and overshadowed by both Mildred Burke and Fabulous Moolah. I, I picked her. Wild Bull Curry, innovator of the hardcore style of wrestling and a major star from the 30s through the 70s voted for him the mongolian stomper archie Gouldie, who was a major star in several different territories most notably in stampede wrestling voted for him the innovative and pioneering sputnik monroe uh who really kind of made major inroads in terms of uh race relations in the in the earlier days of the Tennessee Territory, among many other things, I voted for him. The the great AWA tag team of Harley Race and Larry Hennig, because this is the first year that I think uh, Meltzer is allowing or putting tag team candidates on the ballot. So uh, I voted for that great tag team. I also voted for the great tag team of Argentina Rocca and Miguel Perez, probably the the highest drawing uh, main event level tag team in the history of the business. So they should go in as a tag team voted for Johnny Rougeau, uh, one of the biggest stars to ever come out of the, the French Canadian wrestling scene and the patriarch of a major wrestling family voted for him and the great tag team again, as a tag team, the tag team of the Vachans, Mag Dog Vachon and Butcher Vachon won titles all over the place um, and uh, were particularly a force to be reckoned with in the AWA. I voted for them. Um, in the modern performers category, I picked three people that, well, two of whom I've been voting for for years in the hopes that they will eventually get in. One is the Junkyard Dog, uh, at one time uh, one of the hottest stars in the business and a mainstream bona fide celebrity, particularly in the Mid-South region, voted for him. Voted for Sergeant Slaughter because how in the world can you have a pro wrestling hall of fame that Sergeant Slaughter is not in for the love of God people. So I voted for Sergeant Slaughter once again, voted for the Steiner brothers who I believe have only been on the ballot a couple of years now. Um, really and truly one of the greatest, if not the greatest tag team of the 1990s. I picked them. Um, I, uh, in the Mexican category, Mexico candidates, I voted for Huracan Ramirez, uh, um, one of the earliest luchador movie stars really before, even before El Santo. And I voted for the innovative and, uh, very fondly remembered Rito Romero as well. And in the Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Pacific Islands, and Africa category, I voted for Big Daddy, major UK star, needs to get in at some point, got to vote for Big Daddy. I picked him. Also, Johnny Saint, another major UK star. I voted for Ricky Starr, who, who kind of started here in the United States and then went over there and uh, continued in, a, in a, another chapter of his career uh, as well. A very important figure I think needs to go in. And of course, Adrian Street, another one, another iconic figure of UK wrestling who then came here to the United States and North America in general and made a name for himself here as well. Um, in the non-wrestlers category, I voted for the great Bobby Davis, the basically the originator of the heel wrestling manager character. Uh, voted for Morris Siegel, 
Because if Paul Bosch is in, Morris Siegel needs to be in. The godfather of Texas wrestling as a promoter, he should go in. Roy Welch as a promoter, a major figure in pro wrestling in the South, particularly the Southeast for decades from the 40s through the 70s. Uh, Stanley Weston, of course. Uh, Bill Apter is in from the old Weston magazines for the work he did there. And it only uh, stands to reason that Stanley Weston, who was the publisher of those magazines, maybe the best remembered wrestling magazines in the present day. uh, So I voted for him. And finally, the Grand Wizard, Ernie Roth, as a manager, iconic figure, uh, part of, of course, WWF's holy trinity of evil managers, again, by my estimation, needs to go in. So. That was my list of who I voted for for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. I hope you found that enlightening. Um, I also apologize for taking uh, a little longer than usual this week before I get to the meat and potatoes here, but I was really um, uh, looking forward to sharing my candidates with you. So I hope you appreciate that little break that we took. But now I'd like to get to this talk that I had with Al. So if you are a regular listener of the PWI podcast, you're going to enjoy this. If you like our talk about modern day wrestling, this was a chance to talk about old school wrestling with Al, who was a big WWF fan in the 80s and 90s. Uh, We talk about his worship of the ultimate warrior for for good or ill. And we talk about a surprising array of other topics, both related to wrestling and outside of wrestling, as you know, sometimes happens here on the show. So I hope you enjoy what we had to say to each other. And I'm going to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, this one has been a long time coming. I've been saying I was going to do this since the beginning, and I know he's probably annoyed because I've gotten through <laughs> like the entire uh, 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 staff of PWI past and present. Not quite, but but I've had a series of PWI luminaries on the show, and this is going to be another one of those shows from the pages of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and also my co-host. Normally, we do this on a different platform, so we're used to talking to each other. My co-host on the PWI podcast, and for 15 years, a member of the staff of Pro Wrestling Illustrated and Kappa Publishing, a senior writer on Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I'm talking about Al Castle. Hey, Brian. Thank you for having me on. It's like if you had your own PWI 500, I'd be near the bottom. Right. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, you know, Bill, after, I think you had 499 writers on before uh, me. <laughs> I, I had I had Kevin, but he's the editor in chief. Sure. You know, I had it's priority. I had Bill Apter and Craig Peters, legends of PWI. Yeah, of I'm course, working on being a legend. I'm not there yet. <laughs> of course, you can probably quibble with me for having Reg on before you. I guess I have really. No Reg is to... awesome. No, I, I need to get him back on uh, our podcast. Yeah, no, he's yeah. great. I, I like to uh, I like to talk to people that have that perspective of because my definition of old school wrestling is very fluid. It's basically like whatever people want to talk about. So like sometimes you don't realize and Reg and I talked about this, that the wrestling that you watched when you were younger is now kind of considered old school wrestling. Like it's kind of weird to think about like, you know, the attitude era and even like the begin like even 20 years ago even like the period that i worked there in wwe it's like whoa wait a minute like i was talking to somebody about john cena of being like wow john cena is now like 
an old school wrestling legend. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. My, my, uh, 13 year old son is now about as tall as I am. He's, he's a young man and he grew up on John Cena. John Cena was the star when he was a baby. So that's old school for him. And then, um, you know, I've been, I've been hunting down some old, uh, wrestling tapes on eBay, uh, as I'm known to do. And you find somebody, uh, you know, selling a lot of old school VHS tapes, and you're like, oh, great. You look at them and it's like 2006, <laughs> you know? And, right. and so, yeah, we're, I think we're similar ages. So I think our our kind of point of reference is, is similar in terms of, and I don't know, it, it's funny that that line of like, what is old school also moves as you get older, right? I mean, I remember there was a time that I thought like, oh, I, I'll never get nostalgic for a certain era. Then I find myself getting nostalgic for that era. Right. Something that blew me away was when, when WWE Network did there i don't know if it was like a one-time documentary or a series it might have been a series they did on ruthless aggression yeah and i'm like whoa hold the phone here and it's like it's nostalgia about you know like the 2000s wrestling which i don't know i mean of course it makes sense but to me it's like oh my god that was just like i was not even a kid then i was like a fully grown adult i had children i was working there and not only that but it's funny it demystifies things a little bit because it's easy to get um, nostalgic and kind of have, have rose colored glasses. And it makes you wonder about other periods of wrestling that even before our time that people get very nostalgic about, because like, I remember working there and I remember in the two thousands, everybody in the company, not everybody, but a lot of people being like, wow, this really sucks. Yeah. Well, they were right. (laughs) We're in a lot of trouble because they were going like, wow, even just a few years ago, it was so much better. What the hell are we doing? Why is Triple H talking for 20 minutes every week? Why is, um, you know, where's Steve Austin? What's going on? How come we can't make any new stars? Which is hilarious. They were saying that 20 years ago. How come we can't make any new stars? It's like I'm sure they were saying that 30 years ago and 40 years ago and 50 years ago. Right. right. I mean, and I I think that's a it's a little unfair too because people I think you get like blinders on in the moment because people have always been saying that it's kind of like the people that have always been saying that Saturday Night Live isn't funny for like the past 50 yeah. years. So at what point was it funny? But it's like that. It's like you, you think about oh wow we can't make new stars we can't make new stars. And then while everyone is saying that, they're continually making new stars. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, I think, you know, you, you have to be uh, honest with yourself about what nostalgia uh, is about, because uh, people who get nostalgic insist that the era that they came up in, and this doesn't just go for wrestling, it goes for anything as you're touching on TV, music. Or whatever, my, it, it, my era was the best. Music was better when I was a kid, and music sucks now. And for a certain artist, that that might be uh, true. I mean, I've seen like you know these memes where people are comparing um, Freddie Mercury to some like, and I don't want to name anybody, but some sort of mid-level, flash in the pan modern artist. And and that's also not fair because you're you know right. you can bring an all-time great uh, against maybe a one-hit wonder or something like that. But I do try to separate my love for old school wrestling with an appreciation that a lot of it wasn't very good. You know, it's just, but what nostalgia is about is that it brings you back to where you were uh, in, in, in life at, at that point. And uh, usually it means your childhood. And so life was easy. It was innocent. Um, and that's why it sort of, I'll, I'll still pop in a tape of WWF superstars from 1990 and 91. And it's like comfort food. Uh, but when you see, 
you know, a cobra chewing on uh, Macho Man's uh, arm. I mean, am I going to argue that this is like high art? You know, I'm not, but I love it, you know, and and, it, and I do think, um, you know, wrestling, and we talk about this a lot on, on, on the other podcasts, uh, at least you know, wrestling's pretty good right now, right? I mean, I do think that the, the, the kids of today, 20 years from now, are going to look back on this era and they'll be, I mean, unless it's much better, 20 years from now, but uh, people who complain about stuff being crappy now, there have been crappy periods in the last couple of years. Uh, but but really, sometimes, it, it, you know, they draw um, and I say they, WWE, whoever, you know, they, they create sort of these like artificial boundaries, the attitude era, ruthless aggression. And, and sometimes there's some strategy behind that. But sometimes those separations are really a lot more organic. They kind of happen on their own. I think we're kind of living through one this year, right? With clearly with Vince McMahon uh, leaving and, and Triple H coming in, it does feel like we've turned a page. Yeah. And it's not just a branding thing. Like a lot of times these things are like marketing ideas, like the new generation, you know, it was a bunch right. of guys in a boardroom deciding, Hey, it's going to be the new generation now. Like, you know what I mean? Whereas this is a real line, you know, Vince is gone. And, you know, I think most people would agree that you could tell that the product is changing. And I think that it'll be even more apparent in say a year or two from now where you'll look back and you go, wow, that's like, it's like a, it's like day and night. I really do think that not to get too much into current wrestling, but it it is a huge moment. Uh, somebody like that stepping away, it's not going to have, you know, it's not going to just be seamless. Right. You no. Know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And triple H is, is again, not to get too much of the current stuff, but he's seeing to that. Right. I mean, I think there was, a question, certainly in my mind, and a lot of uh, a lot of people's minds, like how much, especially when it's your father-in-law, um, how much do you just kind of very boldly just tear it down, rip it up, and say I'm doing something different? And how much do you kind of try to pay homage and try to work with what was left with you and and make it more gradual? And a lot of it has been a lot more rip the bandage uh, kind of thing. I mean, one thing that a smaller thing, but an item from this week was with. Um, uh, I still will call him Eli Drake, uh, but they called him mm -hmm. LA Knight and then they called him whatever the hell they did. Uh, something Dupree. Max Dupree. Max, Max Dupree. Dupree. And, you know, this guy was uh, a great talker, great body, a good enough wrestler. I mean, we, we were both impressed with him in, in NWA. Yeah. And uh, Vince got in his head that this guy's not a wrestler. He's a manager. And then Triple H sort of inherited him as a manager. I think tried it out for a few weeks and realized the hell with that you know like why why do i have to st be stuck with this guy as a manager he could absolutely still be a, a wrestler and it sounds like uh la Knight is back yeah and a lot of that is the power struggle look there obviously was a power struggle going on and you could see between vince and triple h and you can see in a lot of the things that are being done it really is like triple h going i'm i'm going back to what i was doing yeah. i i was right you were wrong you're gone so I'm going to go back to what I was doing with, with all these rehirings and repackaging. I mean, like, it's very clear. Um, but if I can take it back to the old school stuff for a second, what you said before uh, about the nostalgia thing, and sometimes it can be um, deceiving. I had RJ City on here a few weeks ago, and he had a great line, and I'm going to steal it, where he basically said the wrestling wrestling wasn't better when you were a kid wrestling was better because you were a kid mm, yeah you know? absolutely and yeah. i feel that way about so many things you could say that about it's like you're so young you have so little experience um everything is more impactful to you obviously 
it leaves a greater impact on your mind. We've all had that experience. I think it's safe to say that any old school wrestling fan, myself included, you have the experience where you go back to watch something that was such a big deal to you when you were a kid. And you have the double reaction of being like, wow, that really wasn't as amazing as I remembered, number one. But number two, I still think it's awesome because Mm -hmm. I'm just because it's just awesome. And and I don't want to even have an argument about it. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes I I think they're less frequent, but that latter one um, happens, too. And and, uh, one example is the Karate Kid. Right. So um, as a kid growing up in the 80s, I loved the Karate Kid. Like everybody loved the Karate Kid. Uh, and then I've sort of rediscovered it in, in the last few years with Cobra Kai and all that. So we went back and watched all the Karate Kid movies. The Karate Kid is a fantastic movie. I mean, like I watch it back now and I'm like, this was a great, great movie, better even than than I thought. And that goes for Karate Kid 2. And, and I might have even left some of these thinking like this could have been nominated for Best Picture. It's that good, you know, um, and and that's a real treat because then you're like, well, I, I called it. I was right <laughs> when that's I was true. six. Yeah. And sometimes it does hold up. Like I, I, I'll repeat a story that I told recently on another show where it's like the moment I became a really diehard wrestling fan was Andre the Giant turning on Hulk Hogan on Piper's pit and that moment that everybody remembers of a certain age. And, you know, a couple of times I've gone back to watch it to show friends or like to, I'll I'll show like my wife. I'm like, watch this, watch this. Like this was, this was amazing. And it's like, you're watching it. And yes, it's corny as hell. Fine. Whatever you want to say. I'm still getting emotional. Yeah. I'm in my forties. I'm able to intellectually go, this is like some dinner theater stuff going on here, but I'm still getting goosebumps. I swear to God. And I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm still getting a little misty and going like, Oh my God, the poor Hulkster and Roddy Piper is helping him up and everything because it's just like, cause you're a kid and it, and it's like, you're just programmed a certain way and and it's never going to leave your heart. You know, it always means something to you. It, it's also just good storytelling, right? I mean, it is. Um, it is. And and one of the things that happened, uh, I guess, in, in the late 90s and, and 2000s with uh, certainly the Vince Russo era is that there was like this kind of counterculture move of if it seems obvious, let's do the the total opposite. Um, so heel turns came out of nowhere, which was more of a surprise versus, you know, Andre's turn that was telegraphed for weeks and weeks. Or you think of like other great turns like uh, Sean and Marty in, in the uh, the barbershop. Uh, and, I, and that's like one of those things I show my kids still like and, and it still is fantastic. But right. They teased that for that wasn't a surprise. It was right? it was teased in the magazine, for God's sake. Sure. They, they yeah. even brought it up in the barbershop. Uh, segment where there had been an article in WWF magazine that said like, are the rockers on the rocks or something like that, you know? Right. And would it have been more of a surprise if there was zero dissension and he just did it out of nowhere, I suppose, but also you'd be in this, this happened with Vince Russo all the time, right? Like that doesn't make any sense. Like why, why would this happen? Um, so it, it's just good story. Like, and, and yeah, that's as much as cheesy as like that eighties era wrestling WWF in particular, that we grew up on that made me fall in love with wrestling too, is a lot of it was just good, solid storytelling, you know, the, the, the twin Hebners, right. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, and, and sometimes because you're, you're older and you were a kid, 
I think as we're talking about, you dismiss some of that stuff saying like, oh, that was really corny, but I was a kid. What did I know? And then you watch it as an adult and you're like, no, this is really good. I mean, like, why can't they do something like this these days? Not only that, but, you know, I mean, I I hate the word, you know, cheesy. Like I I wrote a book about Godzilla, for God's sake, and I had to constantly fight that all the research I was doing and then interviewing people about it, that word kept coming up. It's cheesy, 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 cheesy. And I'm like, it's, it's so dismissive and cynical because it's like for some of these things, monster movies, comic books are a good example with, with comic book movies, wrestling. Sometimes it's a quality that people love and cheesiness is the negative way to describe it. But but there's just something you don't always have. Not everything has to be extremely super serious and perfectly executed. Like sometimes with comic books, because I, I also write about that. A lot of times I wind up not enjoying the movies. A lot of times I do, but sometimes I don't because they're taking the, the material from the comics and they're basically going, oh, this is corny and cheesy as hell. We're going to change everything. We're going to change everybody's costumes. We're going to change everybody's names. We're going to have these meta jokes in the movie where we just make fun of everything because it's so dumb. And I'm like, why are you even adapting this then? If you don't like part of the reason that people love the comics is because of their tone and the way they're presented because you have characters in ridiculous costumes with ridiculous names. I mean, that's the nature of it. And, and so I think it's the same with wrestling. We used to talk about it in the office, like, Whatever, if you call it cheesy, whatever you want to call it, the fact that, you know, wrestling always felt like it was slightly behind the times and things, that was one of the most endearing things about it that we enjoyed about it. But I think cheesy, uh, and I don't know, I guess everybody has a different definition for what that means, but I, but I think it means you go, go for that and you miss the mark, right? It's the difference between... Right. Um, you know, Captain America Winter Soldier and that Captain America movie that came out in, in 1990, remember, with the guy with the big hat and, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and all that. So one worked and one didn't. And and uh, I'd love to have a conversation about comic book movies. Um, but, I, I, you know, Marvel, uh, for, and now Marvel, you know, is... Uh, they just completely fell off and, and everything they do is trash for the, the last well, several they, months. They should have stopped. Endgame should have been, okay, yeah. we're going to take a break for a few years, honestly. There have been they a couple here and there. untouchable um, for, right. for years and years. It was like you were guaranteed to see a good movie if you went to see right. Marvel. And now it's the opposite. I, I assume everything I'm going to watch for Marvel is going to be bad. And I'm, I'm usually yeah. right. And I liked, uh, um, I liked, might be the worst thing I've ever seen. It's it's. Uh, I, I haven't even yeah. I haven't even bothered with that. I liked uh, the Spider-Man crossover movie. Yes, um, great. It's the last that was awesome. great thing they did. And I liked the Doctor Strange movie. I did not that Sam Raimi did. I liked that the horror. I it was terrible. Horror <laughs> but everything else, I was very disappointed by the new Thor. A lot of these, like what I call jobber movies, they're doing about yeah. You know, <laughs> like it was one thing when they did Guardians of the Galaxy. And everybody was like, I knew people that were like, I'm not even going to bother with this. The Guardians of the Galaxy are like, no, no one cares about them. They're such minor characters. But the movie was such a home run. But now now you've got and it's such a home run that it changed the way they made Marvel movies. But now you've got like they're really scraping the barrel. It's like we're going to make a movie about, you know, Daredevil's hairdresser. Yeah, you like got to be like the super, super fan. And, and my brother's kind of a super fan. So... Uh, you know, we'll be texting about a show and I'll tell him that, you know, this sucks. And he says, but did you see that, you know, at the end, uh, they introduced the white knight 
I'm like, who the hell the, is the, the Black Knight? Knight? It's the, the Black, Black Knight. Knight the White Black Knight. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I have no idea who these people are. Like, I'm open to minor characters, but it has to be well done. And it also has to be mixed in with the characters that people really care about, too. But, yeah. I, but I always say, like, uh, and to tie it into the whole cheese thing that I'm talking about, you know, um, sometimes you can try too hard, I think, to get away from what makes something work. Like, I always talk about with people how it's almost like a drinking game you can count on in every superhero movie. A character will make a joke about a name of a character. Like they can't just embrace the names of the characters. They have to laugh at the audience and go, we know that all these names are really stupid and ridiculous of these characters. You know, like they just, they even did it in the Spider-Man movie. And it really bugged me when professor, when, when Dr. Octopus when they asked him what his name was and he said Otto Octavius and they just started laughing because to me, it's like, this is the nature of what this stuff is. And if you're going to have characters in it laughing, it's almost triggering to me because it reminds me of the way people who hated comic books would laugh at you when you were a kid, because you liked these ridiculous, stupid comic books. And then if you actually have the people making the movies who have that same attitude, something is a little broken in there, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I, I think this all kind of touches uh, back uh, uh, to, to pro wrestling because there, there clearly is an, an overlap there mm-hmm. between these two kind of colorful, fantastical universes with larger than life characters and the challenge of presenting it in, in writing that line between uh, uh, reality and, and entertainment. And, um, you know, I, I sympathize with the, the comic movie makers because it is one thing to have Superman drawn on um you know on paper you know bright and colorful and it looks just fine in in the context of the world that he's in on that page but it's another thing to to get a guy and give him skin tight you know blue clothes and and red underwear that he wears on top of it and you look kind of ridiculous uh so it is and, and i think that's why um they moved away for the most part from, from the Christopher Reeve model. And now Superman has got to have scales and it's a darker shade of blue and, a, he, he and looks kind like, of maroon. Yeah. He looks know. like he forgot to wash his costume. Like <laughs> Yeah. Laying out. But I get it, that, that it, it is hard. And, and with wrestling um, that's, it, it's always been difficult too. I was just um, uh, thinking about this in, in, in one context, hearing Seth Rollins talk about, John Moxley, and and this was like a little thing, but it kind of blew my mind that you know for all the years that they worked together in WWE, if uh, even if if Seth is giving you know a, a shoot interview, a, an interview with a reporter talking about, and 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 his partner comes off, it would be Dean, right? He would re- he would reference my friend Dean, uh, and now he goes by the name John Moxley, which I know is his it's not his real name, but John is his real name, and uh, you hear Seth talking about Mox. And I'm like, well, like, when when do you flip that switch? And is it because he assumed a, a new character? Uh, and I thought that, you know, I've seen people call Finn Balor Prince or or Finn. Uh, and I don't know any other, you know, kind of form of entertainment where, where that happens, where you're literally talking about these people's identities, because it, it's not referencing the character on TV. It's referencing the person. Right. And it, it changes as their TV character changes. So um, and and. You know, that comic book overlap is is very much uh, what one of the things that that drew me in, into wrestling 
and you and we knew it was going to end up talking about the ultimate warrior but that that was i was waiting <laughs> you know the ultimate warrior was the closest thing to a superhero you know um uh, very much and it, it's so out of this world and uh it's interesting because again you 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 draw that character up right um and you think he's got big hair and he's got tassels and he's got this face paint and all that and you think like well that couldn't work in, in real life that would be ridiculous and it worked right and yeah. and uh when, when you can find that balance and and make it work again going back and forth back and forth that's why i think marvel was successful for so long because they took something like iron man um or uh the hulk and they found that sweet spot where it is fantasy but it also works on the screen yes and and the, the interesting thing with ultimate warrior in that you know thinking of these wrestlers as created characters which by the way i always have a dispute with when people will always say i don't think this is quite true when people will say well pro wrestling is is just a tv show it's like any other tv show it, you know there's characters like <clears throat> You know, when you watch The Walking Dead, you know that, you know, those aren't really zombies. They're actors. And well, wrestling's just like that. They're they're actors playing characters. It's not. I understand where they're coming from with that. But wrestling is its own animal. It's a little bit different. It, it's like they walk this line where even though kayfabe is dead and people say that and they give it lip service. In some ways, it's not because they still are trying in the moment to convince you of the reality of certain things uh, that aren't necessarily real. And, 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 and there's a line, like sometimes wrestlers characters and wrestlers real life, you know, person is not that different, you know, <laughs> like John Cena's name is John Cena. You, you know what I mean? Like Kurt Angle's name was Kurt Angle. And, and, and so like their on-screen persona is just a variation of who they are in real life. And then they'll bring in like aspects of their real life will come into the storylines. And there's like this blurring that doesn't happen in a movie, like a character in a movie or a TV show is not the actor at all. He's playing a completely different character. They're not trying to make you believe, you know, in an action movie that the fights are really happening. No, no there's no expectation there. Whereas wrestling kind of does that. It still walks that line of, it's scripted entertainment. We say that. We all know that intellectually. But it's still pretending to not be, if that makes yeah. sense. And and I think just in the, the very recent past, and I'm talking the last, you know, two to five years, there's been another kind of evolution with that where you, you see it with the, the Seth Rollins, uh, Matt Riddle feud, where they're hitting on some real stuff. Right. But even the 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 smart fan watching it gets what they're doing. So because for, for a long time, certainly in you know that Vince Russo era, early 2000s, when they would try to incorporate the real life stuff, you felt like they were trying to dupe you. You felt and and as a fan, you kind of took offense that they'd even bring in this real life stuff in it because we understand we don't need it to be real. We just want a good storyline. Uh, but I think the latest evolution is an acceptance that there is a way to do it, to incorporate real life where, you know, another example is, is uh, uh, Ray and Dominic Mysterio uh, feuding. They are really father and son. They are really feuding with each other as a fan. And, and I don't know that when, when uh, Dominic debuted, whatever it is, two, three years ago, I, I would have thought I would be at this point where I'm okay with, with Ray and Dominic uh, feuding uh, because it is a, 
you know, they're basically telling a good story right. and that has real elements versus, you know, Eddie being uh, Dominic's uh, son, whatever it was, 15 years ago. Um, that Dominic's was, father. Right, right. I'm sorry. That, that was harder to swallow. So I think we're seeing another kind of gradual evolution where they are incorporating real life with the storylines and yet uh, understanding that fans are, are able to make that separation and still enjoy it. Right. And, and without insulting people's intelligence and, and, and that kind of thing, but it's like, you know, and I'll give, I'll give a modern, a current example, but it ties to a very old school idea because people talk about how, you know, heels today can't really get heat. Wrestlers can't get heat because everybody's in on the act. So it's not like in the old days where you could really make a crowd hate you. And, and if you do, sometimes it's like, well, it's for the wrong reasons or whatever. What are we going to do? We don't want people to change the channels. I have to say, Sammy Guevara is now the most hated heel in AEW. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it's from an audience that is very smart as far as wrestling audience goes, wrestling audiences go. They're really knowledgeable. You know, they know when they're being worked. Like they they sort of, even with MJF, like he's so good at what he does, but they love him. You know, they love him. They love him because he's an obnoxious a-hole, you know. But the Guevara thing, because it's based on something real, they, I mean, the heat he was getting, and I know maybe people will say it's the wrong kind of heat. The heat he was getting Wednesday night was like the heat that a heel dreams about. And, yeah. and it's like, well, could we do something with this? You know, in the old days, the, they would have said, oh, my God, we're going to have a huge Andrade Sammy Guevara feud now. We're going to milk the hell out of this. Will they, will the, could they get all the parties to agree? You know, uh, um, for people that are, that are strictly old school fans that don't watch current, the current product. Uh, there was a backstage fight. There was real heat online and backstage between two AEW wrestlers, Sammy Guevara and Andrade El Idolo. And it turned into a fight backstage before the show went on the air. Andrade got sent home. And when Sammy Guevara came out for his match, his main event match, people thought he was going to get suspended and he's in the main event and he wins. The heat that he was getting from the crowd, it felt very different. It really was like, screw this guy, you know, not. And and I feel like there might be something they could do with something like that, you know? Yeah, it, it's tough to figure out. I do feel like um, maybe promoters are more apt to kind of lean into that than than they were um, before. I guess there were attempts. You think of uh, Edge and Matt Hardy. Yes, um, that, that was, was whatever, 16, real. 17 years ago. And they kind of leaned into that one. I don't know how successful it was. I don't remember, you know, that being a feud of the year or anything like that, um, or anybody particularly getting over uh, from that. Well, but, Ed, Edge got. I mean, Edge really launched into the rated R superstar. I suppose, thing. yeah, that coincided with the uh, yeah the angle lead yeah. and all that. Sure, yeah. And I and I have to tell you because I you know I was around when they were doing that. They were all very uncomfortable with doing that. Mm -hmm. All, all parties involved. I don't know if I ever had mentioned this on here before, but I remember I was, they had to really convince them, like, we're going to take your dirty laundry and we're going to make it into a TV storyline. I happened to be walking around the, the, the office, just wandering on the fourth floor, which is where all like the big shots are in Titan Tower. And I'm walking down the hall where they have the TV writers. Because the TV writers have offices in the TV studio, and then they also have offices in the corporate building, too. So I'm walking down the hall, and it's like where all the writers are. And I just happened to pass by and look in the door, and I saw they had Lita 
Amy Dumas. Basically, she looked like she had been pulled out of her class at school and sent to the principal's <laughs> office. She's sitting in a chair against the wall in the corner, like miserable. And I can't remember who it was. They, they were. T- it might have been like Brian Gewertz and Dave Lagana. I think. I think Dusty Rhodes might have been there because he was in TV creative at the time. Like it was a bunch of them, and they were like trying their best to persuade her, like that 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 this was a good idea. That the fact that you know. She had dumped Matt Hardy for Edge and this whole sordid real life thing that they could make an angle out of it. And in that moment, she was not having it. Obviously, they talked her into it, but but that was something they were not thrilled about doing. So there's that element, too, where if it's my real life and I really don't like this person, sometimes people don't want to work together because of that. They always used to say in wrestling a lot of times that the hottest feuds and rivalries you'll never see on TV because mm-hmm. the people just don't want to work e- with each other because they hate each other so much. Like that's the reason people always said that there was never um, Austin Hogan, that you got, uh, you got rock Hogan, but you never got Austin Hogan because Hogan Austin. And I think the, both of them were just, especially on the Austin side, were just like, I want to work with this jerk. And that, that's changed so much again, even just in, in the recent past where I feel like, uh, it's commonplace now for guys to have, you know, real heat and go in and, and work a professional match. Not that that wasn't happening back then, but I think uh, you wouldn't, you almost wouldn't think twice about it, you know, and, mm. and, and wrestlers were able to separate their jobs. I mean, I think of interviewing Eddie Kingston in, uh, a few months back for the magazine and, and he doesn't like half the people in the locker room, right? I mean, he talked about he really doesn't get along with anybody, man. The more I, I, I love him, but the more I read his interviews, I'm like, who do you like, Eddie? I mean, like you, you hate everybody. Even though more and more he's being proven right, you know, with, right. with, with all his issues. I mean, he turns out to be a pretty good judge of character, uh, I think. But, but um, for him, it's not an issue. It's like, yeah, I don't like the guy, uh, but I'll wrestle him. And and it's interesting that, that his take wasn't, um, you know, I can hold that aside and put a match together professionally. His take is that's going to help the match, you know, right. that, that we really don't like each other. I think that's a good attitude to have because I think it can help. Um, I think maybe there was a fear, especially back in the day. I don't think it's that much of an issue anymore, but back in the day when you had more people in the locker room who were legitimate shooters or very dangerous uh, wrestlers and could, and I'm not saying there aren't people like that around. There certainly are. But I think when it was much more of a Wild West thing, there was a fear that if I'm in there with this guy that really hates me, he's going to really try and cheap shot me and stiff me and hurt me in there. And I don't want to put myself in that situation. And maybe there's just less of a fear of that happening now for various reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I guess guys don't uh, put themselves out as as tough guys as much as uh, back then. Not only that, but there was just a, sen- a more of a sense of anything goes like I'm yeah. going to. I'm going to just, you know, because what do I care? Like if, if you know, what do, if they fire me, I'll just go, go to some other territory somewhere and, and, and work there. You know, it was a lot more of a Wild West environment. But yeah, I want to take it back to the Ultimate Warrior for a second, believe it or not, because <laughs> I think he he's a turning point when you're talking about characters like this. And I even remember thinking this as a kid where. He was like the next evolution. And I know he wasn't as big of a, of a box office hit as Hogan was quite, but he was like the next evolution of what Hulk Hogan was in a way where Hulk Hogan was, well, the ultimate warrior for me, it was the first character that they had 
introduced when we didn't even think about them as characters that seemed to be almost divorced from reality and humanity. Like we were supposed to believe that he wasn't even human and in a very literal way that he was this superhuman being, you know, and the ultimate, the undertaker then came along a little later and he really cemented that. But I feel like before the warrior, um, there was still that idea of like, okay, yeah, these guys are are crazy and wild and over the top and they take on these personas and stuff, but they're real, they're still people. Like at the end of the day, they cash a check, they go home, they have families, they get in their car, they drive home. Like with the Ultimate Warrior, we were supposed to think like this guy, he came from like another dimension or something like he's not even a human being. He can't be hurt. He doesn't have a name like he his name is Ultimate Warrior. The guy has no name, especially from a kid's point of view. It was like a real turning point. Whereas with Hogan, there was an element of that where he's a superhero. He's larger than life. But I don't think it was ever to the point of the warrior where where you thought like this guy isn't even a human being. And, you know, he's still he's a man. He's human. But when you get to the warrior, especially when you're a little kid, you're like, this guy is not even a wrestler. He's like something else. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I really give uh, the the bulk of the credit uh, of that to the warrior, to Jim Helwig, because um, if, if you think about Vince McMahon's take on the warrior right after he he won that title, remember uh, a, a few weeks later, he shows up on WWE Superstar and they, and they give him a baby to hold up and he starts kissing the baby. And I was whatever, 12 years old, uh, 12, 13 years old at the time. And even then I realized that's not the ultimate warrior. Um, and th- they, you know, they really should have leaned into it. And I think eventually they kind of did because the warrior kind of willed it. So, um, you know, it, it, it's tough being an Ultimate Warrior fan and being kind of like a, a wrestling guy, a wrestling writer, because it almost immediately sort of takes away your your credibility, your legitimacy. But um, I, I think, you know, there's just a, a, a misunderstanding of what he brought to the table. And uh, in some ways, I, I've always thought the Warrior got wrestling in a way that most people don't and, and really got it. And um, I, I think... You know, we talk sometimes about separating art from the artist, and 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 that certainly is the case uh, with the warrior. And it's not yeah. just that he was a weirdo and, by most accounts, kind of a jerk and maybe a bad guy uh, in in real life. But he was a bit of a nut, clearly. But it's not that he was. Um, it worked in spite of him being a nut. I think it worked because he was a nut, right? I mean, so he. Uh, but but. You know, th- there are some decent shoot interviews and stuff out there uh, with the warrior. And I actually think he's often dismissed as uh, having no regard for wrestling. And and um, you, you could argue that point when it comes to, like, taking care of guys in the ring and stuff like that. But I had a very different impression of of him, how committed he was to his art, to that character and um, that he had the success that he did, I think really is a testament to him having um, this really refined, polished vision for a character that was unlike anything that wrestling uh, had seen before. And I was a fan of wrestling uh, in the 80s as a kid through Hulkamania, all that stuff. But I remember for me, there there absolutely came a point where I was done with Hulk Hogan. You know, Hulk Hogan, it, it just kind of had overstayed its welcome. I remember 
the Zeus feud really being kind of a turning point where I kind of, you know, dropped out. Uh, and then when I, I heard that the ultimate warrior got a clean pin on Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania, it was mind blowing. And, and that's what brought me uh, back in and, and really made me fall in love. And uh, you know, for his many, many, many shortcomings, uh, I, I think the warrior doesn't get nearly the credit he um, deserves for his contributions. And all some of that is also like good wrestling matches, which sounds like sacrilege when you're talking about, you know, the ultimate warrior. And uh, but I can name more than a few, you know, and, and did they have a lot to do with his opponents? Uh, absolutely. But also there was a formula to an ultimate warrior match right. that like a Goldberg match or, or a road warriors match that when when it was followed really worked and yeah. popped yeah. crowds and, and left you satisfied. And I think a lot of that, honestly, especially in those days, the way it was being booked, a lot of that also had to do with Vince and and also Pat Patterson, because you would hear stories about how, like, for example, the the Hogan match at WrestleMania six. Right. You know, no one's going to say it's like some scientific wrestling clinic, but it's a very exciting match and people get into it. And it's like watching, you know, it's like something out of a comic book. And that was something where, you know, when you read about it and you hear about it, like Pat Patterson was very much involved in this, the, the finish, the sequencing, how it was going to play out. Cause he just, he had a knack, I guess, for working with guys strengths and around their weaknesses. He knew what he was going to get out of these two guys, especially warrior. And he played it up and he gave them and he helped give them these ideas from what I understand to make the match as great as it could be. Of course, we've talked about the Randy Savage match at WrestleMania 7. Legitimately, probably the best match on the card. Um, oh, yeah. At that retirement match for Savage. But he- here's my question about the Warrior, though, because, and I feel like I-, I could definitely ask you this because it's something people talk about all the time. As popular as he was, and he was over, and and his and he got even more over than Hogan, and there was all this groundswell of support. Why is it, it seems like, when he finally does it and wins the title, it's almost like that's the beginning of the downturn of WWF's fortunes and popularity in a way. Like it's almost like they supported him until he actually got there. And then they were like, wait a minute, yeah. we're not sure. And they lost. And I don't know if maybe it was the company overreacting. They seem to lose confidence in him. Like I remember when he won it at the time, I remember thinking this is going to be like another Hogan deal. This guy's going to be the champ for years, you know, especially because we didn't see a lot of short title reigns back then, especially babyface ones. And you're thinking, oh, wow. Okay. We're going to have this guy for a few years. And then like nine months later, it's off of him. So how do you account for that? I, I do think it, it's what you're touching on that that they they never fully committed uh, to him. And, and maybe they if they did, he would have flopped even bigger, but I don't think we really know. I mean, I, it sort of reminds me of when they put the title on Rey Mysterio um, back in 2006, where, you know, you get to have your moment and say, Rey is our champion. And isn't this crazy? The little guy like this is a champion. And then never headlined uh, a pay-per-view, you know, barely won any uh, matches clean. And and there were others uh, that fell into that. Brian Danielson was one when he was in uh, WWF where it's like, and, and with Warrior, part of the problem was that Hogan was still around, you know. So I think he was – did he take any time off after WrestleMania? I mean, Hogan – they moved right into the earthquake feud. And Would the he? earthquake feud 
trumped yeah. anything that was going on with the warrior. It was the biggest right. thing on WDF television. And you think about, you know, this is an, an interesting um, uh, point. I mean, the warrior got one title defense on pay-per-view. Uh, Summerslam, and and yeah. yeah, and granted, there were fewer pay-per-views uh, back then, but it, it remained the Hulk Hogan show even while the, the Warrior was champion. Um, so, you know, Earthquake trumped him. And then when Slaughter showed up and they turned him heel, it was all about building to Hogan uh, beating Slaughter. You know, you, you look at like uh, a Survivor Series of that year, one of the biggest pay-per-view. Warrior was in the opening match, you know, buried in... Uh, a feud that he had nothing to do with the the Legion of Doom uh, demolition feud, and I, I thought the feud with Rude it was sort of pe- pedestrian leading into SummerSlam, but I also really liked it. I thought it really worked, and I thought that match really worked. You know, I, mm-hmm. I uh, and and a lot of it has to do with Rick Rude, but there's another, you know, I'd say good Ultimate Warrior performance, but it was, um, you know, and 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 this is kind of par for the course for Vince McMahon. Uh, I think he was never fully invested, you know, and, and it might've, you know, contrast that somewhat with when they put the title on Savage uh, in 88 and Hogan disappeared to, to make no holds barred for a few months. And Savage was the guy for, for a while uh, because Hogan wasn't around. Uh, And I feel like, but for the the little angle uh, and maybe they were making suburban commando at the time, uh, the the angle where Hogan was off TV for a few months for Earthquake, and it really wasn't that long. I mean, I, I think, think they brought together six weeks, something like that. Yeah, I think his son, that's when his son was born. That was part of it, um, Nicholas. And I think there might have been a movie thing going on at the same time, but it wasn't as long as when he left. When and Savage also, happened. even with him off TV, still the whole focus of all those shows was was Hogan, you right. know, and, and, and Get Well Hulk and all that stuff. You know? And SummerSlam, SummerSlam 90, the show we're talking about, the main event was Hogan and Earthquake. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, what I went mean, on last. You know, no, it didn't. Warrior and, and Rude went on last. Oh my um, god! Okay. But 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 I think people, you know, it's one of the, like a Mandela effect thing because <laughs> yes. um, because you're right. That was the main event of the show. I mean, clearly Hogan Earthquake was the biggest thing going on in WWF back then, and it felt like they just kind of you know threw a bone to Warrior and Rude and let them <coughs> close the show. Also, it's the logistics of setting up the cage and tearing it down. Right. Oh, that's true, too. Back in the day, they'd usually do it. If they were going to do it in the middle, it would be like right before an intermission right. or something or right after. But I think like, you know, the difference with Savage and Warrior, let's say, when they took the belt off Hogan and had to put it on somebody else. You know, I didn't know all the ins and outs at the time, but I mean, reading about it later and learning about it later, it seems like with Savage, when he gets it in 88 at WrestleMania four, there was not an idea that Savage is going to be the next big champion he's going to be the next hogan it was more like hogan has to leave for a while he's making a movie we need another top face to put the belt on but when hogan comes back we're going to put it back on him I and they think. were grooming his next big opponent right i mean they, right. they had the the mega powers explosion planned from uh, the outset so i think savage got protected more because they were grooming him to face hogan where that right. wasn't they really the, the plan yeah. warrior Right. They knew that Sav- they were going to turn Savage. I mean, they knew from the minute that he won it that he was eventually going to turn heel and lose it back to Hogan. Like they had that all worked out. Whereas I think with Warrior, there really was the plan like this guy's going to be our next Hogan. This guy's going to be our next standard bearer. Like th- we don't really have any foreseeable plan on the books to put it back on Hogan. Like this is our guy now. 
And and then they had to sort of change gears and say, okay, well, I guess we are putting it back on Hogan. So I think like with it was a totally different thing with Savage. I think Savage was meant to be always a placeholder for that year, whereas I don't think Warrior was. Yeah, and and uh, again, I think the Warrior was sort of set up to fail, which is interesting because clearly McMahon had a very much a soft spot for for the Ultimate Warrior, and, and I think maybe uh, in, in some ways more. Then Hogan, you know, he sort of inherited Hogan from the AWA and it was already kind of this fully formed uh, a character. Yes. Um, and he might have seen, even though there was Dingo Warrior and all that, but the Ultimate Warrior was more of a creation under Vince McMahon's watch. So uh, uh, maybe he he felt more ownership with that. But but we saw it up until, you know, the Warrior died uh, uh, eight years ago. There was, there was clearly a lot of affection from McMahon um, to the Warrior. Uh, but I don't know, maybe just the business part of him never really bought that he could make more money with the ultimate warrior than with Hogan. Uh, but I mean, as a kid and I was writing the demo at that time, I I thought it was, you know, it was magic. I mean, I got my wrestling buddy back then, back there, you know, the, the, the marketing, the action figures, the posters, I mean, the ultimate warrior, I thought was like a godsend for, for WWF in the early nineties. It was like the the ultimate, um, you know. It was the, it was the place you knew that they were trying to get to because, you know, when he when when it starts the in the mid eighties with Hulkamania and the expansion of the WWF and everything, it's like a work in progress. And you could tell like he's pulling all these stars from different territories, and they're pretty much continuing to be the same personas and characters that they were uh, before, but you know, just maybe retooled or whatever. But they're all still junkyard dog is still junkyard dog. Roddy Piper's Roddy Piper. Hulk Hogan's Hulk Hogan. You have Andre the Giant, Jake the Snake. They're all, you know, who they were. But slowly but surely, it starts to become more of a of like a McMahon creative product where you start getting in the by the late 80s, people being completely repackaged, starting from scratch, or you know, Ted the million dollar man, a total creation, Mr. Perfect, the big boss man. You start seeing like yeah, I'm going to I mean I'm either going to take established stars and completely remake them or I'm going to take people that no one really knows about and make them from scratch. Warrior was like a little bit of both. Like he had been people knew who he was. Like I knew fans that knew about the Dinko Warrior from World Class and things like that. But it really wasn't even close to what the war, Ultimate Warrior was in the, in the WWF. That was like the final, you know, place that he that Vince wanted to get to creatively where I'm going to have this product that it, it they're all my creations it's really for kids because that you know that it was still rough around the edges when 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 the expansion started it was still it's it still had that edgy kind of feel to it it wasn't totally kiddified yet by the time you get to the late 80s it really is a product for children unapologetically that's what this is it's like ringling brothers it's like disney on ice or whatever and the ultimate warrior was the ultimate uh, crystallization of that idea yeah. of a kid product, you know, for better and, or worse. And and you see all these years uh, later, later, 30 something years later, the importance of things like uh, uh, branding and merchandise and, and how critical that is to um, uh, WWE's uh, business model. Uh, I, I was just interviewing uh, uh, Finn Balor uh, yesterday and he was talking about, you know, the demon character and how, you know, over the years, there were times um, where he felt like uh, um, 
the decision to to break out the demon character was motivated more by marketing and merchandise and that kind of thing than than actual creative. Uh, and I get it, but but now we realize, you know, every time John Cena goes away for a while and comes back, he's got a new shirt, he's got a new hat, he's got new colors. The Warrior was onto that before anybody, and and you think about in especially after he won the title, because you know uh, a switch was flipped. If you look at like '89 Warrior and you look at '90 Warrior, the '90 Warrior is a lot more refined in terms of um, the look. You know, he'd have. It was like having different action figures and there were different looks and there was, you know, the warrior with his hair gelled back and the little symbol on his cheek versus yes. the warrior with his hair poofed out and and the big paint. And sometimes he'd have the paint on his chest and sometimes he'd wear a singlet and sometimes his uh, his gear would be neon green or it would be orange or it would be black. And this all sounds super trivial, but it was so important to what that character was. And it was really important to what made me as a kid fall in love with him. Uh, And and that was, I think, the warrior's ownership of of that character. Now, you could argue that, well, maybe he should spend more time, you know, practicing wrestling moves and and less time, you know, uh, agonizing over his gear. But I think that's all what what created this character. And what's really interesting is that there are you know, the haters and, and there's uh, lots of them and I get it. Um, but talk to a lot of wrestlers, um, who are around our age and, um, you know, and, and I don't mean just like the, the, the Rybacks of the world or anything like that. Uh, but, but Brian Danielson, you know, Frankie Kazarian, um, these are real guys that I've talked to that have, have said the ultimate warrior was one of their inspirations and they love them. So, uh, yeah, I think there's too much of a dismissive attitude about what he brought to the the game. And it says a lot for the the how over he was and also the marketing machine of WWF. Because if you think about it, especially now in hindsight, we've talked about this. You're talking about what? Four years tops, right? It was like a window of time. Yeah. It was not this epic long period. Like you think about, you know, it's 2022 now. You know, somebody that has been in WWE since 2018. That's like the, a blink of an eye to us. Yeah. So he debuted what in, in 87. 87. Um, and he was done. His first run was done. I mean, 91. And then he came back in 92. Yeah. Right. He was gone for about six months from 91 into 92. And then he was around for a few more months. So it's like four to five years. But it's not this this incredibly long time. But there's a couple of things like when you're a kid, it is a very long time. It's like half your life, mm-hmm. you know, like it feels a lot longer. And the impression that he made on so many young people in that little window of time, uh, whether you like him or not, it, it cannot be denied because years later, decades later, people our age, especially people that are were maybe more casual fans and maybe haven't watched it in a while and aren't into it anymore. They will say, oh, my God, the ultimate warrior. Yes, the greatest. And they'll put his name right there with Piper, Hogan, Flair, Andre, like Savage, these people that were around forever, you know, and the warrior's name will be right there with them, even though he was just there comparatively for like a blip of time. But it was such an important blip of time. Yeah, I mean, we both get to vote on the uh, Observer Hall of Fame and the warrior's been on the ballot 
for years and years, I always vote for him. I've, I've, I even years ago wrote up a whole long thing that the Observer published that was the case for the Ultimate Warrior, and and um, I think there's even a case from a, a business perspective. Uh, you know, he he actually checks a lot of uh, the boxes, um, but he never does well. I don't expect he'll ever get into the the Hall of Fame. I mean, obviously, there's nothing he can do now to to change his case. But it's one of those things that if you again you ask like the not even casual fan, sort of the non fan, and you tell them. There is a real wrestling Hall of Fame. Who would you expect to be on it? They'd all say the Ultimate Warrior, and they'd right. and they'd be shocked that the Ultimate Warrior is not on it. Yeah, and and also even to get off Warrior, there are a lot of people for the Observer one where it's like that. Um, the criteria sometimes are so tough. It's a little weird. elitist. Yeah, you know, it's weird uh, the way it's done. I mean, I admire the rigor that goes into it because there's no other wrestling Hall of Fame that treats the selection process i think as seriously they he, he really tries to do that but of course you're going to have personal bias because it is it's one man's hall of fame right so there's part of that too um but the criteria make it so hard because sometimes because i'm somebody i vote every year for sergeant slaughter and i say the same thing you're saying about warrior i'm like how in the world could you have any wrestling hall of fame anywhere and sergeant slaughter is not in it just by virtue of the fact that he was one of the names and characters that transcended into mainstream culture like he tells the story which i mean it might be bs i don't know about sarge has told the story about being on an airplane once and sitting next to richard nixon or behind mm-hmm. him and richard nixon getting up and going like oh you're sergeant slaughter oh my god can i take a picture with you <laughs> richard nixon so i mean like there's a there's something to be said for these intangible things where it's like i can't quantify it on paper i just know that this person belongs in it's almost like wrestling you can't really treat it like the baseball hall of fame where you crunch numbers like it's more like the rock and roll hall of fame where it's yeah. like yeah you're looking at how how many records they sold or whatever but it's also just you just know you're like okay aerosmith has to go in the rock and roll hall of fame why because they're aerosmith like right. I, i'm not going to sit here and explain to you why and i think there's got some guys that are like that with the with the with the observer hall of fame like fabulous moolah never went in i think she dropped off the ballot just yeah. like how is that even possible? Gorilla Monsoon is not in. There's a lot of that. Yeah, what one, one name that, that I mean, I I won't profess to be like a huge fan of uh, English wrestling, but but Big Daddy, you know, Big Daddy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Big Big Daddy, I know is huge, yeah. literally, and and uh, for the culture there. Um, another guy who I don't think ever does very well on the no. ballot. I don't know if he's still on the ballot, but uh, again, I think if you asked the casual wrestling fan. In um, in the UK, I think they'd they'd expect that Big Daddy would be on that list. Yeah, probably. I'm not, you know, I don't live there, and from what I understand, from everything I know, like you said, for for like the really not clued in wrestling person in the UK, if you bring up wrestling and they're of a certain age, especially Big Daddy is going to be the first name they say to you. That's at yeah. least what I've been led to believe. So how could somebody like that not be in a wrestling Hall of Fame? You know, it's uh, especially if you're trying to to uh, be all encompassing and, you know, cover all aspects of the business and all parts of the world and things yeah. like that. You kind of have to make exceptions for things like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not limited to these guys. And, and then I, on the flip side, well, I'll ask you this. I mean, do you think that there are people in the hall of fame who 
don't belong in the Hall of Fame, but are there uh, largely because of you know their their work rate as it's recognized. And well, even though they they miss a lot of these other intangibles that in some ways are more important. Right. And I'm not against, per se, somebody going in strictly because of how good they were as a performer. Like, I can almost see that. Like, if you have somebody that maybe didn't become as big of a star as 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 other people, but everybody knew that they were one of the best in the ring and they were just incredible or even on the microphone, they were just a great talent that maybe didn't get to where they could have or maybe wasn't even ever designed to get there. I can almost see that. I, I, I get it. but. I take issue, and I think this is a big thing that needs to be rectified. I think they've got to change the time limit. Uh, and I've talked about this. If you've when you've got like Kenny Omega going in, I mean, what what are you doing? Like, I'm not saying that he never goes in. I'm not saying that at all, but he goes in like 20 years from now. You know, the guy is active. He's one of the top stars in wrestling. Not only that, but for the average fan, they've only known him the past couple of years, you know, you know, three or four years, uh, the average American. How does baseball do it? Uh, baseball. Oh God. I used to know this because you've got to be retired for, for some time, right? There's no retirement. Uh, yeah. You have to be retired, but with observer, there is no retirement requirement. I no, think Okada just got in right last year. Yeah. And, and like CM Punk is eligible. Like I think Randy Orton went in, you know, and, and I'm like, there's got to be a retirement requirement, number one. But even if you, even if you, if you, there's not, and I think the reason they don't do it is because in wrestling it's so tricky. Like nobody ever. Sure, retires. you come in and out, yeah. But they, I think the rule is, oh, somebody will correct me. I think it's like 15 years. Active. I think that's right. Yeah, and I really think it should be more like 25. I think that mm -hmm. makes a huge difference because, like, wrestling is so different in baseball where they have these rules. Like, you know. You're well, like in wrestling, for example, there are a lot of guys that because it's performance, it's not sport, they're not even getting warmed up for the first 10 years of their career. Like they don't really hit it big to their 30s. A lot of guys, they've been around forever. Like, you know, um, guys that will that's why someone like Omega can go in because he's been wrestling since the 2000s, but yeah. he's only been a, a major mainstream American star in the last handful of years. Same thing for a lot of guys, but it's like a loophole that allows these contemporary guys to get in. Whereas in baseball, that's never going to happen. You're never going to have – if a baseball player is not heating up in his first 10 years of playing the game, then he's just a bad baseball player. You know what right. I mean? Like they're, they're producing, especially Hall of Fame level players, they're producing right out of the gate. So it makes more sense to say, okay, this amount of years – but to take that same number of years and apply it to wrestling just does not work because, like we see, you have guys that are hitting eligibility for the Hall of Fame at the same moment that they are hitting their prime as wrestlers. It's very weird to me. Yeah, yeah. It's almost an end. Uh, I say this somewhat tongue in cheek, but it's almost an argument for WWE's method of the Hall of Fame for wrestling maybe being a better fit than the observers um, method in that it goes somewhat just on feel. Right. And, and, yeah. but, and certainly there's a lot of guys that be hall of fame that I would uh, protest, but um, the, the average fan again, or, or, or the non-fan, the mainstream fan, I think would look at the WWE hall of fame, uh, the names who are there and probably look at it with more legitimacy than, than the observer hall of fame. 
and that's not necessarily even the right thing to do, but, but they'd see like, um, you know, Coco beware, right? Like, Oh yeah. The guy with the bird. Yeah. yeah you should definitely be in the Hall of Fame. I know the bird, I, you know, I but, know, but that's how it goes. It is. And, and it is more intangible. The one thing WWE does that they do require that somebody not be fully active, even though in like we see with edge and people like sometimes they come back, there's no controlling yeah. that, but like at the moment they're going in, they're done. Like as far as we, in this moment, like they're not currently active anymore. I think that's important to do. I, I want the thing I hate the most about the WWE Hall of Fame. They've really worked hard to get people in that were always glaring omissions like yeah. Savage and Bruno and you know, Bret, Bret Hart, Warrior going in. That I applaud them for and even the historical ones they've been doing. But they have this weird system where they're always trying to check boxes. Like, yes. Like every need a woman, year, need a minority, <laughs> you need and, a tag and, team. And Kristen, Kristen Ashley on our staff, she'll kill me for saying this. I'm sorry, Kristen. But every year they feel the need like there's got to be a woman. And the problem is, and I love, you know, Beth Phoenix is a friend of mine, I have to say. But it's like when you're forced to do that, because the business never gave a huge platform to women wrestlers, and it's only in the past handful of years that women have been prominently featured on the, on all the shows, you've got a very slim field. So what you wind up doing if you're looking at women of the past is inducting like all of them, you know, yes. because like when you induct somebody like who's a good example, uh, who I, I they're all great, but like ivory. Okay, I like Ivory is a very good example. Ivory was amazing, but a male wrestler who was at the level of Ivory in WWE is never going in the Hall of Fame. Do you know what I mean? And yes, it's more like it checks a box. Well, we need a woman. We need like we need an attitude era star. We need like, um, you know, they were for a long time. I think they dropped this. We need like a foreign person, someone, you know, Japanese uh, from Japanese wrestling. It's like. They're shoehorning in these categories. Uh, we need somebody from this era, somebody from that. And instead of just having it be more organic, who are the people that feel right this year? I, I, I agree with you somewhat, but also my view on this has evolved some um, just in, in the last years, recognizing that if you if you did that and you stuck to that strictly, what you'd be um, left with is a Hall of Fame filled with white men right um, b- because no, you're right but but b- because but. that's the, who were getting the pushes and who were getting right. um the break so um i mean I, I i sort of scoffed as much as the next person at a coco beware getting into the hall of fame um or you know tony atlas or somebody like that um but then i also think about well you know coco and tony didn't have the same opportunities that that a lot of these other guys uh, had and that they made it as far as they did um, is really important. And and it is a testament uh, to them being special uh, and great. And I suppose you can make the same argument for the women, too, for somebody like an ivory to, to even be remembered at a time when, um, you know, it was lingerie pillow fights, you know. Right. And and it's tough. It's like you said, it's a, it's a situation that is very tough to grapple with because going forward is not going to be a problem. You know, 20 years from now, right. inducting a Hall of Fame is easy because there's so much more diversity in who's pushed and who the stars are. It's the same thing like, you know, when you look at, at movies and the stories that get adapted, like people will often complain about race switching in movies or you have a white character yeah. played by a black actor. And it's like the problem that you struggle with when you're making these movies is for generations, so many of the stories – 
were all white characters or, I, or, yeah, or I mostly was... male characters. So what do you do? Do you tell a black actor, well, you just can't play Shakespeare because right, right, in, right. In the 16th century, you know, they were just all white Englishmen. So you're out I was just having <laughs> I was just having this conversation uh, yesterday at the dinner table. And I don't remember what the context was, but but uh, I'm, I'm also a big James Bond fan. And I'm in a lot of these uh, 007 Facebook groups. And you think it's bad in the United States. You you, you see the discussions on these words, I think a lot of English people. And, uh, you know, the the thought of James Bond being anything else but a, but a white man right. is so triggering uh, uh, to, to some people. And, and you get sort of the coded language. And the one that 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 you hear all the time is uh, so and so Idris Elba is the one that comes up a, a lot, who's awesome, maybe a little old to be Bond, but I think would be a fine Bond. Um, you hear a lot. Well, he'd make a, a fine villain for James Bond, he'd be, you know, and it's like, what does that mean? Uh, and and, you know, they, they point to, well, this is the way it always was. Bond has always been a white man. He's got to be a white man. Uh, but right. But, but but, you know, judging how you go uh, uh, forward based on uh, precedent when there's, um, you know, it, it, even in the recent past, I was watching this is very out of the blue, but watching um Rockstar in Excess. Remember Rockstar in Excess? They did a, a reality show yes. to crown the new lead singer of um, In Excess after oh, Michael God. Hutchins yes. died. Yes, yes. This was and this was like not that long ago. This was maybe like 2004, 2005. And um, I was uh, watching it on YouTube the other day and they were going through all the uh, the contestants. And it was white guy, white guy, white guy, white guy, white woman, white woman, white guy, white guy, white guy, white guy, you know, and then I think they had one black guy in there um, who I don't remember making it very far in the contest. And uh, even in difference of these few years, it sort of blew my mind. It's like, um, and, and not just that that happened, but this wasn't any kind of story at all. This was nothing, right? I mean, it was just, well, of course, you know, the next lead singer of, of an excess has got to be uh, a white guy. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think uh, kind of going full circle, um, it, it was my take in this year's PWI uh, 500. This was the, the, the most non-white uh, wrestlers in the top 10, I think. It's the first time we had a majority. I think six of the top 10 were, were, yes. were non-white wrestlers. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Yep. Yeah, so it shows some progress. But, but I think we'd be lying, uh, and, and we know Kevin's sensibilities, if um, we then say that some of that um, is, and I want to be careful with my wording here, but but um, I, I don't think that that had, even if those guys all had the same uh, year and the same career a few years ago, that top 10 looks different, you know, uh, a few years ago. Right. I mean, I mean, do you think that, and I know, I know we've sort of run out of time, but this is such an interesting topic. Do you think, because I didn't feel like, I felt like that was pretty organic. I mean, I don't think we were, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I was in the dark. I don't think we were consciously sitting there going like, we need to have a majority non-white top 10. No, it, it wasn't. I mentioned that too. So, but, but I think there's a middle ground between not forcing it, but also in putting together a list, being more aware of stuff like this. Right. Um, and where, where I don't think it was even, uh, you know, I think now putting together the 500 and not just the 500, but, but you see the content in the magazines uh, every month. Uh, I think stuff like representation uh, is at least on somebody's mind. 
Right. Yes, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I don't think it, and this isn't a slide on anybody. Um, I, I think it just speaks to sort of, you know, we, we live in a different time. It, it's, it's, it at least comes up. I, whereas, sure. Um, I, I don't, you know, when I started the magazines and even more recently, I don't think it would have been anything to have 10 white guys in the top 10. And, uh, and, and if they earned it, that, that, that's fine. Uh, but I don't think anybody would even have noticed. I think today we would notice. Oh, certainly. And look, and I'm not even talking about the people on the magazines, you know, it, back in the day, the magazines were reflecting what the product was, you know? Yeah. It's but, one of the things that, that also I wrote about that, that we're sort of stuck with is like, even if we wanted a, a black number one, we're beholden to who's getting pushed and who's being successful. So, so uh, you, you could only, you know, you can only advocate so much Not not even that that's what we're doing, but you, you, you have to reflect what's actually happening. But I have a joke that I will tell that sort of it's it's kind of sad, but it's grounded in reality of like uh, because, you know, in the past, uh, there clearly was racial bias in the booking of wrestling in the people in charge, whether it was something conscious or not. It was very much um, a part of the way wrestling was booked. Um, I, I always say the one clear way you could always tell that wrestling was choreographed and prearranged and not an actual sport is if you look at every other sport where you know yeah. you, you start to see over the decades sure. as as there's more opportunity that the sports are getting dominated by non-white players boxing baseball football not hockey but you know all these other sports where the minute uh in America it starts to loosen up racially then you see the the race is kind of swarming in and and really dominating the sport. Not non white players in baseball, black, uh, Hispanic in in the NBA. You know, I mean, uh, you know, the, you you could fit the great white NBA players probably in an elevator. And I don't even follow the NBA, but yeah. then you you look at wrestling all through those years, and it's all white guys. And I always say, sure, that's how you know wrestling is fake because <laughs> yeah. if it was if it was competitive and a real sport. It would not be all white guys. <laughs> you know, Kofi Kingston in, in, in 2019 became the, the first pure black WWE champion in 2019. You know, right. you had the Rock some years before who's half Samoan. Um, and, and and that's kind of crazy. And and since then, there have been a few uh, uh, Bobby Lashley and, and uh, Biggie and some others. So we we've. Uh, who are both in the top 10 of the, the 500 this year. But you look at the, the first 500 back in 1991, the, the highest ranking black wrestler uh, was Ron Simmons. And I think he was something like 25 or 29 or something like that. Uh, and that's kind of nuts. And when you when you look at boxing, right? I mean, right. Ha, bo in boxing, there has not been an undisputed, you know, there's a million heavyweight champions now. There hasn't been an undisputed white heavyweight champion of boxing since the 1950s. Isn't that crazy? I mean, yeah. that's legit. And even I remember like in recent years when when Klitschko won one of the one of the various versions of the heavyweight title, it was the first time there had been a white heavyweight champion of any kind in decades and i mean <laughs> wrestling is the complete polar opposite of that you know it just tells you everything you need to know yeah um but 
I have to stop now because we could just talk about this I know. All day and <laughs> just roll and, into the PWI right, podcast. <laughs> we have our own show to do, right? We might as well just do our own PWI show. I know you have things to do, so we can't yeah. do that. I have things to do, but but this has been great, and we finally did it. So yeah, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's not that conversation I expected. To, <laughs> I thought it was gonna be a lot more Ultimate Warrior, but there was a a good amount of Ultimate Warrior, I suppose. <laughs> we got the Warrior in there. Yeah. Are you trying to tell me there wasn't? I no, I thought it was going to be all Ultimate Warrior, but but I, I enjoyed this version a lot more, I think. So. Yeah, and I think probably the listeners would too. Yeah, <laughs> there's only but, so much know, appetite. We had, we had some. We got about, I think, about a quarter of the show, Ultimate Not Warrior. Bad. Okay, Not bad. that'll have to do. All right, Al, I guess I'll talk to you when it's time to do the PWI podcast. Yes, uh, I'll be harassing you by text in the next few days. Great, thank you. Yeah, all right, man, have a good one. You too. There you have it, folks, my conversation with my usual PWI podcast co-host and partner, Al Castle. That was a lot of fun, as it always is talking to Al. This time we changed it up a little bit. And uh, although we did talk about a bunch of new stuff, more than probably usually gets talked about on this show. Uh, but we we talked about we got to get into some topics and areas that we normally don't get to do on the PWI podcast. So uh, I loved doing that. And I also encourage you to check out the PWI podcast because we do it every single week. Very easy to find the same way you find this show, the PWI podcast or the Pro Wrestling Illustrated podcast. You will enjoy it. Um, in the meantime, Keep listening to this show as well, because next week is one you are not going to want to miss. My guest coming straight out of the 605 Super Podcast Extended Universe, none other than Kurt Brown, a.k.a. Vandal Drummond himself. This is a unique one, and I'm going to give you a warning right from now, a week ahead of the language in next week's episode. So stay tuned. It's going to be one of a kind. Um, Got some other great guests lined up for the weeks to come. If you keep on listening to this show, including longtime uh, WWE producer, creative writer, Chris Goff, a.k.a. Big Country, who I used to work with at WWE back in the day, also a promoter in the Midwest area. Um, And uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to be talking to Pam Morrison, the daughter of of J.J. Dillon, who I've gotten to know quite well over the past couple of years from uh, conventions and reunions and things of that nature. Uh, Always love talking to her. So that should be really great. Keep on listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. Where can you find it? Wherever great podcasts are found, folks. Podcast Addict, Podbean, um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Google Podcasts, you name it, or Google Podcasts if you want to. I mean, maybe it exists, but there's so many different ways to find this show. Uh, and our website, suawpod.com. We also have a Facebook group for the site where uh, you can go to take part in our daily conversations. That is Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Look for that on Facebook. And um, also, if you're interested in that that territory article I was talking about before um, and you want to buy other issues of Inside the Ropes magazine, go to InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. For Pro Wrestling Illustrated, as discussed today, you can go to PWI-Online.com. For my current book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, Go to Amazon, uh, go wherever you buy books online. You'll find it. It's available in print, 
digital and audio format. And yes, I still do have a couple of autographed copies for people that want them. Reach out to me, Brian R. Solomon at yahoo.com, and uh, we can talk. Hope you are enjoying the wrestling news. Now, uh, going strong for over two months, your, your daily source every single morning for the best in audio wrestling journalism. Please do check out the wrestling news from the Arcadian Vanguard Network. And if you're looking for me on social media, I can be found on Twitter, on Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. Um, I can also be found on Facebook, my writer page, my official author page on Facebook, Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find a link to my author webpage on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that old soldiers never die. They just fade away. So long, wrestling fans. 